which he toils under the sun. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and worship you, Lord Jesus, and to remember your sacrifice on the cross. At this time, we'd like to commit to your speaker, uh, Raven, as he comes and speaks to us. Help us all to be able to take his word to heart. Uh, help us to help, help this word to help us to uh, grow closer to you, Lord Jesus. And um, in your most holy name we pray, amen. Good morning. As is evident from the reading of the text, we are not studying Revelation. We will be studying Ecclesiastes. But uh, thank you for the so many votes that came for the book of Revelation. Uh, But as we thought about it, we thought in light of all that we studied in the book of Daniel and understanding what's going to come ahead of us and in the years to come, uh, let's understand how to live here in light of all that is to come. Because uh, <clears throat> my understanding of eschatology is this, that you know, we could be caught up and fascinated with all the prophecies and fulfillments and all the dramatic things that are going to happen, but at the end of the day, it is the returning of our Lord Jesus Christ. The central event in eschatology is the coming back, the personal coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we must understand that. So in light of that, we must also learn how to live as Christians and that is what is important to us, and, and we hope, and it's our prayer, that Ecclesiastes will take us through that in the chapters that we have ahead for so many months. <clears throat> so we have here the title, God Alone Holds the Key to Life's Meaning. God Alone Holds the Key to Life's Meaning. So we'll be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 11, 1 through 11. <clears throat> I'm not in the best of my health. From last night, I had some acid reflux, and my throat is irritated, so please keep me in prayer, even as I speak. <clears throat> George Harrison, one of the Beatles, in fact, you know, Beatles is one of, the, uh, one of the greatest and the most influential pop bands of all time. So Harrison, he knew fame, he knew adulation, he knew the pleasure of mastering his craft. In fact, he had a profound influence on Western music. In, his, uh, in the Beatles anthology, he says this. He says, when you've had all the experiences, met all the famous people, made some money, toured the world and got all the acclaim you wanted, you still think, is that it? Some people might be satisfied with that, but I wasn't. I'm still not. 
Some people might be satisfied with that, but I wasn't, says George Harrison, and I'm still not. Boris Becker, who's a famous tennis player who I grew up watching, uh, I was his fan, a great fan of Boris Becker when I was growing up. After his second Wimbledon title, um, a reporter came and asked him the question, what was his greatest temptation? And he point blank looked at the reporter and he said, to keep myself from committing suicide. The youngest Wimbledon champion, at least one of them. But his greatest temptation was to keep himself from committing suicide. In fact, he went on to say, I have no inner peace. I'm a puppet on a string. I have no inner peace. I'm a puppet on a string. So George Harrison and Boris Becker are not the only ones to feel this sense of emptiness. The echoes of a hollow life pervade our world. And we don't have to know much about the lives of people to understand the despondency with which most people live, the frustration and disappointment with which people live. So what's missing in all of this? When a person has so much and is still bitterly in pain and in some kind of a despondency, desperation, and even suicidal, what's missing in his life? What is it that is not there? So the questions come up. What is the purpose of life? Or better, since most of us work in secular companies, the question is, is there any advantage to our work? Is there any meaning in our work? Have you ever asked these questions? I'm sure most of us have, because most people in the world have asked these questions. And for some of us, I'm pretty sure these questions have plagued most of our lives, even our Christian lives as well. A few years ago, the scientists at uh, Johns Hopkins University conducted a survey of 8,000 college students across 48 universities. 8,000 college students across 48 universities, and they were asked the question, what is the most important thing to you? Now imagine 8,000 college students, and you would expect the answer to be to get a great job, to make a lot of money, to have a big house, and to have five cars in the driveway kind of a thing. But... I can tell you this, that the survey said only 16% answered the question as making a lot of money. About 75% said that their first goal was to find purpose and meaning for their life. 75% of college students admitted to the fact that their first goal in life was to find meaning and purpose to life. Now, this is a staggering piece of research for all of us to hear this morning. Because as we sit here in church this morning, trying to listen to the word of God, maybe you're seeking to discover a purpose to your life. Maybe you're seeking seeking to discover a meaning to your workaday life. If so, the book of Ecclesiastes will guide us in this endeavor. But not in the way you and I might think. Because the book of Ecclesiastes has been dubbed the... the strangest book in the entire canon of scripture. It's an enigma for many Christians. For the bulk of this book is the memoirs of a man who's seen it all, who's done it all, and he is talking about what's wrong with life, what's so much wrong with life. So in the passage for our morning, Solomon here is talking about how life is fleeting and how disappointing life is, especially work a life or, or a life of work 
<clears throat> from the earthly point of view. So from a purely earthly point of view, Solomon says <clears throat> that life is meaningless. There is no significance to life, particularly our labor and our work is what Solomon says. So today's passage will reveal to us two things about meaninglessness of work and how with a change of perspective we can have meaning to our workaday world. How with a change of perspective we can have meaning in our life and in the work that we do as well. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. In verses 1, 2 and 3 you'll see that everything in life, including human toil, is temporary, purposeless, and without permanent value. Everything in life, including human toil, is temporary, purposeless, and without permanent value. This is what Solomon says. Now, bear with the argument as to where Solomon is going, and we'll see the full picture of it towards the end of it. Solomon affirms that all of life leads to futility in itself including work which has no advantage, he says. And in trying to explain this, he makes two statements, and let let us look at it one by one. The first thing he says is, everything in life is brief, futile, and meaningless. Now that's very encouraging, isn't it? Everything in life, says Solomon, is brief, futile, and meaningless. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, uh, let me just take a detour and come back to it for a while. I I just got this. I don't have that in my manuscript. I just got this in my head. I teach a subject called homiletics, which is uh, how to preach and all of that. So in that, we teach very clearly that when you start a sermon, you must start with an introduction that leads into the sermon to get people interested. If Solomon were preaching and if I were rating his sermon, I wouldn't rate him very high. The first statement he makes in his sermon is vanity. And vanity, everything is vanity. All is vanity, he says. So in these two verses, we come to grips with the temporary nature of life. How temporary life is, the brevity of life. And here, the author is introducing himself as to who he is and the theme that he is going to be speaking about throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So in verse 1, he begins by saying, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. In fact, the, word, the Hebrew word used there is the word kohelet, which means the preacher, or an ivy, translates that as a teacher. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you will find this Hebrew word repeating, kohelet, which means the preacher or the teacher. It refers to a wise sage who taught in Israel how to find the will of God, who taught the Israelites the ways of God. So Solomon, towards the end of his life, is positioning himself as a wise sage, teaching the Israelites, teaching the assembly of people, assembly of God's people, things about how to find the will of God and how to find meaning in life. Although here Solomon does not identify himself as the author, his titles and the pen name given here, they give away the author as Solomon himself. Now Solomon's story, we all know, is recorded for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Kings. Although King David had many sons, it was Solomon who was chosen to be the next king of Israel after David. God favored Solomon so much that he appeared to him in a dream and he said whatever blessing you want you could ask and Solomon was 
<clears throat> was very astute in asking God for wisdom to rule over his people and to lead the nation well. And God had mercy on him, God had favor on him, and God honored Solomon's request, granting him not just unparalleled wisdom, but unparalleled riches as well, and unparalleled fame as well. So Solomon wrote three books in his life. Number one is the book of Proverbs. Second one is the book of Ecclesiastes that we are studying. And the third one is the book of Song of Songs. So a lot of Jewish and Christian interpreters agree with the fact that Solomon may have written the book of Song of Songs when he was a youth. And when he was a middle-aged man, he probably wrote the book of Proverbs. And towards the end of his life, when he got a lot of wisdom, he probably wrote this Ecclesiastes. He is considered the wisest and perhaps the richest person who has ever lived. And if you remember from the, from the book of 1 Kings, we see that he had a fleet of ships uh, that would bring him gold on a daily basis from far off lands. But tragically, we all know that Solomon made a drastic mistake. The mistake that he made was to go and marry a foreign woman just to satisfy the other kings and just to... Uh, <clears throat> just to make sure that he's at peace with other nations as well. And the scripture records here that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and this diverted Solomon's devotion. This diverted Solomon's devotion, so much so that often it is said in scripture that he was a man of divided heart. He was a man of divided heart. So in Ecclesiastes, what philosophical conclusions does this rich powerful genius come to towards the end of his life. Those are things that we must study as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, at the end of his life, having lived so much, having been such a powerful genius, we would expect Solomon to preach a sermon on 11 habits of highly successful kings or seven habits of highly successful people. But he doesn't do that. Solomon begins his sermon or his book by saying, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. I've lived my life, I've seen it all, I've had, the, I've had immense wisdom given by God himself, I've built project and projects and everything, we'll see that in chapter 2, but the, at the end of it, it's all vanity, vanity of vanities, it's a chasing after the wind. <clears throat> There's a great debate on the word that is used here for the word vanity, and that is the Hebrew word hebel. The word, it appears several times, at least 20, uh, about 35 times, 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, does it mean temporary or does it mean meaningless? The word hebel in Hebrew, does it mean temporary or does it mean meaningless? Actually, the word carries both ideas and a few other ideas as well. The word hebel is an inexhaustible term. You can't completely exhaust the meaning of the term. It can mean vapor which is very fleeting, it can mean deceitful, it can mean futile, it can mean fleeting as well. It points to that which is without real significance, without real meaning, which has no permanent value or significance. In other words, no person or pursuit in and of itself will bring lasting satisfaction, is what Solomon is saying. Everything is Hebel and therefore is of no lasting value. Everything is Hebel, therefore is of no lasting value. In this one verse that we read just now, Solomon uses the word Hebel five times. Vanity, 
vanity, vanity of vanities. And like I mentioned just a little while ago, that the word hebel appears 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the rest of the 38 books, it appears only 35 times. So Solomon here is trying to get the point across that everything under the sun is vanity. It's vanity of vanities. Solomon is saying that everything in life falls under this definition. When you look at all of life, when you look at the whole world, he says there is Hebel and the world is full of it. The world is full of insignificance. This verse is very blunt, but it is intended to shock each one of us out of our complacency. It is intended, it is designed to rock the boat. It is designed to shake our tree. It is designed to pull our chain as well. So that's the point that Solomon starts with, that it's all vanity. Everything is in life is brief, everything is futile, and everything is meaningless. What he means by that, at least to start with, is that our life is short. We live for 70 years or maximum 80 years. And if you have strength, you live up to a 90 or 100, but then you're gone. And then your children come, your grandchildren come. And the best memory they have of you probably is at a family gathering where they might think, my grandfather lived once. It's just brevity. Life is small. And life is brief, futile, and meaningless is what Solomon says. So that's the first thing that he starts with. Everything in life is brief, futile, and meaningless. Secondly, Solomon says, human labor produces no net profit. Human labor produces no net profit. Look at verse 3. And he makes that statement in the form of a question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does he gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now Solomon follows up his theme with a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer. He says, what does a man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? The answer is, there is no advantage. With all of the toil that we do under the sun, there is no advantage. There is no net profit to it. There is no meaning to it. Work seems pointless because it's quickly passing. Work also seems pointless because it's monotonous as well. But hear me, please. The key phrase to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is the phrase, under the sun. And the phrase, under the sun, appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon means by the phrase, under the sun, is this. That he is looking at it from an earthly point of view. He is looking at it from a human point of view. He is almost imagining a kind of a bowl surrounding the earth where God is locked out of the earth. We don't have God in the picture. So when you look at a purely materialistic perspective, from just human perspective, without God and his revelation, everything is vanity. Everything is like a chasing after the wind. So whenever he uses the phrase, and we see the phrase, under the sun, remember that Solomon is talking about locking God out of the system of earth, just human beings, all of us, this is all material, from the human earthly standpoint, from this point of view, is what uh, Solomon is talking about here. And, says, and Solomon says that given this perspective, what would be the view of earth? This is the experiment in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, what does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? What do we gain by all the toils with which we toil under the sun? Now, moms can understand this verse very well. Whether it's washing dishes or cleaning sinks 
or scouring toilets or washing floors, there's always more to do. You can never finish your work. And even when you're on bed, you're thinking of what work is remaining. There's toil that's always remaining. And not to mention there's chasing after toddlers and you are breaking their fights and, and you're grocery shopping, you're playing with kids and all of that. And my wife just informed me that one of the most difficult things in life as a wife is to prepare good balanced meal to feed her husband. And I think that's true. On top of everything else that she has as responsibilities in life. Now, men can understand this verse as well. After, after all, a lot of travel and commuting in a city like Bangalore, after 50 hours of work, you only come back home to do more work. You clean your bookshelf, or you fix the gas that has been leaking from morning, or you change the diapers for your kids if you're a good dad, give them a bath. There is more work all the time. There's always work. There is no rest for any of us. There is no rest for the righteous. And Solomon says, human labor produces no net profit. Human labor produces no net profit. So that's the first thing that we saw. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we saw that everything in life, including human toil, is temporary, purposeless, and without permanent value. Solomon made this statement. Now, to clarify this statement and support his contention in verse 3, Solomon cited examples from nature. And this is seen in verses 4 through 11, which is our second point. These verses say that everything in the world is caught in unalterable cycles, producing no advantage. Everything in this world is caught in unalterable, unending cycles, producing no advantage. There is no advantage to work from Earth's perspective, from the human standpoint, because of the cycles of life that entrap people. And there is no net fulfillment. There is no fulfillment in doing anything. Now, to, ex- uh, to explicate this and to explain this, he gives three illustrations. Let's go one by one, and then I'll finish my uh, sermon for this morning. <clears throat> Firstly, Solomon says, people come and leave while the earth remains forever. People come and leave while the earth remains forever. Verse 4 A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Let's be honest. Whenever we think about the next generation, or whenever usually people think about the next generation, we usually think of our children. Our children are our future. So they will be able to accomplish things that we haven't been able to accomplish in our lives. So if my grandfather was a teacher, he would want my dad to be much better than him, an engineer, or something else. And my dad would want me to be something much better than what he accomplished in life. Our children are our future. So whether it's Generation X or Generation Y or Generation Z, there's always another generation that is coming after it to give us hope for the future. To give us hope for the future. But like usual, Ecclesiastics here takes a gloomier view Generations come and go, says Solomon. The writer says, one generation might be rising, but you see the fall of another generation. As one generation rises, another generation is dying off. And soon, the younger generation will become the older generation, and they'll be gone as well. So there'll be a generation after generation. Generations come after generations, and, but the earth is the one that is permanent, and that is the only one that remains. The earth is the one that remains 
forever, says Solomon. You know, even in terms of generations, when we look at it, to the rising generation, especially the young people, particularly there are a lot of young people in our church as well, anybody for them who is about 30 is old-fashioned. Now, I find it very difficult to talk to most of the college kids right now because they think I am old-fashioned. I think I was, I was talking to one of the families last week about the same thing. On the other hand, older folks are shocked by the lack of irreverence that younger people have for the older folks. Now, um, I think it was Socrates who, in B.C., before Christ, said that the children now love luxury, they have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect to their elders. Now, this is about 500, 600 B.C. In the Middle Ages, Peter the Hermit said this, the young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they alone knew everything. Meanwhile, while all this, going, all this is going on with generations, generations coming after generations, older people not getting along with younger people, younger people not respecting the older ones, it is only one thing that will remain permanent, and that is the earth that will remain the same. Generations come after generations, but the earth will remain the same, is what Solomon says. The world is a very repetitive place. Nothing ever changes. So what is the profit that we gain? Nothing. Absolutely no advantage, says Solomon. Jerome said this, What is more vain than this vanity is that the earth which is made for humans, it stays, but human beings pass away from the earth. So that's the first thing that Solomon says, that people come and go, generations come and go. Second thing, he says, the cycles of nature are unending. The cycles of nature are unending. This he gives in three verses, but... In giving that, Solomon breaks this down further into three points, and I'll look at each one of them briefly. Firstly, he says, the cycles of sunrise and sunset are unending. The cycles of sunrise and sunset are unending. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Even the daily journey of the sun rather seems pointless, is what Solomon is saying. Round and round it goes without ever actually ending up anywhere. It rises in the east and goes sets in the west. It comes back again the next day, rising in the east. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The journey of the sun is also pointless as well. So day after day, the fire in the sky rises, sets and rises again. The movement is repetitive, it's not progressive, and it's just like life is what Solomon says. And Solomon also says something about the sun here. He says, he uses the word pant for uh, the sun, which may suggest that the sun is actually racing from east to the west. But it also points to the fact that in a poetic way, that the sun is in one sense weary of rising in the east every day and making that 24-hour journey and setting in the west every day. Usually, when our soul is troubled, we turn to nature for some kind of a hope or for some kind of a soothing of the soul. But here, when Solomon, the preacher, looks to the sun, he simply sees monotony of life, and he says that that is also pointless as well. That's the first observation he makes. Second thing, he says, the wind follows a circular course. The wind follows a circular course. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. The wind shows us the same thing, and it fails to accomplish anything more than the sun, is what Solomon says. 
Usually we think of wind blowing from west to east. Now I think Solomon is uh, putting an entire picture of a compass here because he just talked about the sun going from east to west. Now he is talking about the wind. Usually winds in Palestine blow from, blow from either the northerly direction or the southerly direction. And so you have east to west and north to south. And we also know that the wind can blow anywhere it wants. And Solomon says that it blows past and it comes around, it goes around in circles. It's a full circular course. The wind never reaches its destination. For all its constant movement, even the wind, is, has, um, even the wind makes no progress. Thirdly, he talks about the water cycles. The cycles of water are repetitive. The cycles of water are repetitive as well. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The flow of water seems to be pointless as well to Solomon. When he talks about water flowing and flowing, he is not describing the water cycle that we learn in science, the evaporation and then the condensation coming in the form of rain. No, that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he is talking about the fact that all the rivers and the streams constantly seem to be flowing forever into the sea. Particularly, what he has in mind is a dead sea in Israel because the dead sea in Israel is landlocked and Jordan forever constantly seemed to be flowing into the Dead Sea, but it is never full. Dead Sea is never full. It never stops. So the cycles of nature are unending. Solomon's point in describing all of this in nature is this, that life is the same way. What is the progress that we've made? What is the profit that we have? You and I, or perhaps most of us, spend our lives working for one company after another, but what is the gain that we have in all of this labor, in all of this toil? Now, these days I realize it's, too, it's very hard to get a retirement dinner, leave alone a gold-plated watch. So that's the state of companies that we have uh, in our world today. But we realize that there's always deadlines to meet. There's always escalations to clear. And for moms and housewives, there's always more meals to fix, more dishes to do. It's like a chasing after the wind. It's all pointless, is what Solomon says. Thirdly, and lastly, Solomon also says that the cycles of life, uh, life experience are recurring as well. The cycles of life experience are recurring. That is from verses 8 through 11. And to clarify this too, he talks about three aspects of life. Let me just see this life experience from these three aspects. First one, he says there is no satisfaction. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now hear me please. If the sun and the wind and the mighty rivers have nothing to show for their constant labor then what hope do we have of ever accomplishing anything in life? That's the question that Solomon begins this part with. It makes the preacher tired of thinking about it. So he takes what is observed in nature and summarizes it this way. He says, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. What Solomon means is this, that life is wearisome. It's toilsome trouble that it is hard even to put it in words. In fact, the contemporary English version says this, all of life is far more boring than words could ever say. I'm not sure that's a good translation, but at least you get the point. Uh, all of life is far more boring than words could ever say. 
with this statements with this statement the preacher restates the central theme of this book and of his sermon he is trying to show how tiresome how wearisome life is and yet he is not finished making his argument he says it's not just the natural world that there, that proves that there is little for us to gain in life we also talk about our own personal experience and he starts with the sensory perception he says the eye is not satisfied with seeing the ear is not filled with hearing people are always listening to things or watching things particularly in our information age in our age in particular people are always listening to things or watching things every day we see an endless uh, barrage of images that is coming to us so you have hotstar you have uh, netflix you have comcast you have blackberry and all these things and we are never satisfied with seeing and we also listen to a lot of things we have the ipads we have the ipods we have cds and we have what not everything else and we are constantly listening to things as well yet even after all of our looking and watching after all of our listening to things our eyes are not satisfied our ears are not satisfied as well there's one more movie to watch always there's one more over to watch in cricket always there's one more song to listen to but never one more sermon to listen to anyway but uh, uh, there's always one more song to listen to there's always uh, one more uh, extra time in football to watch we are never satisfied with watching we are never satisfied with listening to things so we keep texting we keep facebooking we keep whatsapping and we keep doing all kinds of things and the question is what have we gained in all this what is the net profit in all this what have we accomplished now these are very important questions that solomon is raising and we must listen to this it helps us at least make some kind of progress in seeing that whatever we watch is the same old thing that has been repeating and it's just that our eyes are never satisfied our ears are never satisfied that we want more and more of it like the sea that is never full we want to watch and we want to keep hearing things as well and that's why solomon says the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing then there's a second thing that he says there is nothing new there is nothing new verses 9 to 10 what has been here will be here and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun is there a thing of which it is said see this is new it's already been there before us for ages now consider the uh, endless weariness of human history which always seems to be repeating itself nations rise and nations fall but human nature always remains the same there are times of war and there are times of peace and just when there is times of peace we know that war is around the corner as well think of the middle east think of the think of the arabs and the jews always constantly fighting for the land of palestine there is nothing new under the sun there are only reruns happening in history is what solomon says now this is such a sweeping claim that someone may be tempted to think of a counter example and someone may be count, uh, tempted to say surely there must be at least one thing on earth that is new there must be at least one thing on earth that is new so for a moment solomon gives into the thought and he asks the question is there a thing of which it is said see this is new but quickly he dismisses that and denies it and he says whatever seems new has already been there for ages whatever seems new has already been there 
for ages. Malcolm Muggeridge, the famous uh, journalist of the last century, British journalist, very cynically once said this, all news is old news happening to new people. All news is old news happening to new people. If there's a murder tomorrow in town, it's just another murder. It's happening to a new person, but it's old news. It's always been happening. There is nothing new under the sun, is what Solomon says. Perhaps it would be possible for us to think of some kind of a discovery or some kind of an invention that represents real advance in technology or real advance in information. But even the latest developments of science and technology fall into at least two categories. Number one is transportation. Number two is communication. One is transportation. Two is communication. Now, wireless technology may be a legitimate advance, but there's also something very familiar about it, and that is this. People felt the very same way that it is the latest invention even when telegraph was invented. You get the point? People felt the same way even when telegraph was invented. And so it is just a repetition of history. There's nothing new is what Solomon says. And more than that, and people who invent and discover all these things have the same fallen nature as ever. They suffer with same moral uh, problems, the basic problems, same moral deficiencies, and the same underlying insecurities that people have always had to face. Now, this explains, says Solomon, why history does not seem to be going anywhere It seems to be circular, then linear. Everything here is circular. There is nothing new. And lastly, Solomon says that there is no remembrance as well. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there ever be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. The more things change, the more they remain the same. And if ever... If ever there is really something new under the sun, it's only because we have forgotten what happened in history. It's only because we've forgotten what happened in the past. And the preacher's sermon here about life's weary repetition ends with a line about memory loss. He says, we only feel like there is something new on earth only because we've forgotten history, only because we don't remember what happened in the past. And remember this, one day... Just like history has been forgotten so far, you and I will be forgotten as well. You and I will be forgotten. Centuries from now, the common experiences of our own time will be among the former things that they will talk about. And what we have accumulated will be lost. What we've accomplished will be forgotten. All our descendants will not remember us any better than we remember our ancestors. And eventually... When they come into existence after we are gone, they will be forgotten by the future generation that's going to come as well. Now lastly, the same memory lapse also happens for us as individuals as well. Do you remember what breakfast you had three days back? No, you cannot. Will the kids remember the math formula that they learned in school last week? They may not. So even individually, there is some kind of a memory loss where we cannot remember things from the past. And as we grow old and old, we will not have that kind of an access to memory of our, uh, of our past life. And Solomon here says that that's part of the weariness of life. There is no remembrance of former things. Mark Twain was right when he said this. The world, after you're gone, the world will lament you for an hour and forget you forever. 
the world will lament you for an hour and forget you forever. So this is what Solomon says about meaninglessness apart from God. Meaninglessness from a human standpoint that all of life is meaningless and there is no advantage to work. How many of you are quitting? There is no advantage to work. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says everything in life takes on meaning when you find God, fear him and keep his commandments. Everything in life takes on meaning when you find God, fear him and keep his commandments. Life's short-lived and fleeting cycles should push us towards finding God and pursuing God. Now, here is a crucially important thing for us to understand, and I'll end in the next couple of minutes. Please give me your undivided attention. There is a reason why Solomon wants us to feel the full weight of weariness and futility of life under the sun. There is a reason why he's doing that. Let me read a quote for you about the book of Ecclesiastes. Derek Kidner says, The function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment that all is vanity is the only honest one. So it is if everything is dying. We face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. But the point is, that's not the whole story, says Solomon in the rest of the book. Uh, Remember, this is only one way of looking at things, which is locking God outside of this earth. From an earthly point of view, Everything seems meaningless. Under the sun, everything seems meaningless, but there is a different possibility. There's a different perspective as well. There's a God who rules the world. There's a God who's seated on the throne. There's a God who created the heavens and the earth, the sun and the winds and all of that. And there's a purpose to life. And so, we will, as we study through the book of Ecclesiastes, we will come, especially in the last chapter, where Solomon is talking about fearing God and, uh, and, and uh, fearing God and keeping his commandments. And therefore, when we look at God, we are not subjected and limited to the terrestrial, but we look at the celestial and find meaning for life and find meaning for our work as well. This is how the 19th century English commentator Charles Bridge uh, summed everything up. He says this, We are permitted to taste the bitter wormwood of earthly streams, In order that, standing by the heavenly fountain, we may point our fellow sinners to the world of vanity that we have left and to the surpassing glory and delights of the world we have already found. So looking at the vanity of this world, when we look at God, we find hope and that we realize that it's only hope in God that can bring bring us out of this pointless existence in this world under the sun. Thank you for your patience. Uh, I had a little bit of... Not just a little bit, I had a lot of struggle speaking, but thank you for your patience and thanks for your prayers as well. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the writings of Solomon, where he is very candid and clear that life without you has no meaning. It's vanity. It's like a chasing after the wind. There is no gain under the sun. But Father, with you and in you, we have purpose and meaning to life, purpose and meaning to everything that we do at work, purpose and meaning to everything that we accomplish. And we want to thank you for giving that purpose to us. We want to thank you that we have found that purpose in you. Father, uh, we pray, Lord, that if there's anybody who's seated here who doesn't know you personally and who is still living under the sun without 
any revelation from you personally. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to them this morning. And I pray that uh, understanding the meaninglessness of this world under the sun, they would run to you, they would pursue you, and they would find you and obey your commands and find meaning for their lives. We want to thank you for the rest of the day as well. We pray for the couples meeting and our fellowship and the Hindi meeting in the evening as well. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it and give it to us. And the rest of the week as well, we pray that we'd all honor you in whatever we do. In Jesus' name.